Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. Well, I hope this is as much fun for our audience as it is uh, for me personally. We're going to be speaking with a, a dear friend of mine in the education space uh, that I've known for over a decade. I want to welcome you to welcome you to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. Uh, we have we have with us today the author of Digital for Good: Raising Kids to Thrive in an Online World from Harvard Business Review Press. This is Richard Colada, and many of you know him. And you recognize his face, and probably more importantly, you recognize his energy. If I've known anything about Richard, his energy just never stops. It has not. It's, not, it's, it's aged very well, Richard. <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know, Richard is a CEO of the International Society for Technology and Education, or better known as ISTE. Prior to joining ISTE, he served as a chief innovation officer of the state of Rhode Island and was appointed by President Barack Obama to lead the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Educational Technology. Richard, good to see you, my friend. It's great to see you and uh, so fun to be able to talk to you today. So we were saying off air, I mean, we, we probably have, you know, three to four episodes of content to discuss. And so I will tell you on the front end of this, that I struggle. Do I wear my parent hat? Do I wear my, I've worked in education my whole career hat. When we look at your book, digital for good, raising kids to thrive in an online world. Uh, look, I want to cover a couple of things right out of the gate. And I think this is probably more of my role as a citizen than it is maybe even as a parent or what I do professionally. This you talk about eroding uh, civility in the book. And for whatever reason, it's, it just hit me like, you know, a sledgehammer when we're thinking about the role digital landscapes play in our lives and the way in which we, we either engage or we don't, or what we take with us into these engagements. Can you talk about that as, and maybe utilize that as a backdrop to the why of the book? And what you might think, because I felt like that part of it is something that is a far-reaching benefit to this that goes way beyond 2021 when we think about how we understand ourselves in a digital world. Yeah. Uh, Thanks for starting there. I I appreciate that because that really is the, um, you know, it was kind of the uh, uh, crux of what pushed me into really writing this. And, And that's that, as we've seen over you know, long before COVID, but certainly accelerated by COVID, there's been this transition from uh, uh, activities that happen in our lives in physical spaces moving to virtual spaces, right? We, we've just seen that over time. And again, you know, COVID, it, it was even more so. I mean, how, how many went to a, you know, a Zoom wedding or a, a certainly school in virtual spaces? I mean, I mean, activities that we never would have uh, expected to ever have happen in virtual spaces are now very common, right? Uh, and and so this idea of this migration of our important life activities from physical to virtual spaces um, really struck me because along with that comes some of the basic uh, elements of our functioning society and, and, and democracy, frankly, right? Like in order for a civil society to function, you have to have common places for people to connect and to debate and to share and to learn. And those used to be a town square. They then were a town hall. They are now virtual spaces. Uh, But the challenge is, as we've migrated, as we've sort of moved these key elements uh, that that are required to have a functioning civil society into virtual spaces, we haven't been very thoughtful about how to make sure that they are successful and supported. 
And, and that is really the, the key, uh, you know, behind some of what I'm trying to write here, which is like, if we want to have a functioning civil society in the future, we have to be incredibly thoughtful about the norms and the design of the virtual spaces that we are creating today and how we are preparing young people and us old people too, but young people in particular to leverage those virtual spaces for activities that we in our growing up used the physical space for. Is this about boxing out? It's like, as you were talking, I was thinking to myself, a town hall, right? A, a city square, right? I couldn't prevent people from coming and being a part of whatever that event is. But yet in the digital world, we have neighborhoods, neighborhood associations with closed Facebook groups where all they're doing is perpetuating the only thing that, that matters to them. And so it feels like where is even the concept of discourse has gone by the wayside. We don't even understand what that means to have discourse. And you're seeing this separation literally of church and state or of, of your neighbors. Yeah. And is, is that what we're talking about here when we think about it? Is, it this, but, but this disruption? Like, you talk about digital disruption or dysfunction, yeah. I should say. Yes. There are some digital dysfunctions and I would say it's even worse than that. Like I, and I am, you know, you know, I am a very uh, glasses half full kind of guy like that is, but, but, but there are some really major challenges. So let me just share a couple. So it's not only that we have these sort of closed groups and it's okay to have some closed groups by the way. Right. But, but what the challenge is here is that when we are turning to social media um, for our information, and, and we know that and there's, there's research that I share in the book, the vast majority of Americans and frankly, many parts of the world uh, that that's their news source. It's their information source, right? But the challenge is the information that we're given about whatever we think, whatever we believe is filtered by algorithms. So it's not people saying we want to go over here and have a group. It is an algorithm that is deciding what I should uh, see and what I want to do. Now, we don't have control over those algorithms. We can't adjust them. They are all programmed and they are designed not to help give us a healthy balanced diet of different ideas and, and, and different people to engage with. They are designed to keep us eyes on screen as much as humanly possible because the more eyes we have on screen, the more ads we see, the more clicks we make on ads, right? So here's the problem. The problem is that when we have information presented to us that conflicts with our ideas, our identity, that's uncomfortable. We know that's uncomfortable. And when it's uncomfortable, guess what we don't want to do? We don't want to hang around and see a whole lot of it. And so the algorithms are designed to reinforce the beliefs that we already have and to help us have this idea, I guess I would say the result of which is an idea that we are, we feel perpetually right all the time. No matter how uh, strange or unique or niche our viewpoint is, the, the sites that we participate in that are algorithmically driven will help us feel like everybody else around us feels the same thing. And when that happens, we forget how to connect with others. We forget the value of opposing ideas, which are actually critical to learning. And we forget how to be respectful of people who hold those varying different ideas. We're speaking with Richard Claude. He's the author of Digital for Good, Raising Kids to Thrive in an Online World from Harvard Business Review Press. I want to thank those that have helped bring this conversation together. Thank you to Strategus Group, developing and influencing through change expertise, and to our friends at Edsby, the K-12 platform of the future today. Richard, let's talk about, let, we're going to do this. So we're, I've got the book right here in front of me. So those that are watching, right? So we've got it here. So if I dive into, we go a little bit further into the book. On page 54, I'm going to be that guy. I'm not normally that guy, but I'm going to be that guy. Be that guy. You talk about, you go through these number of reframes. Yeah. And this one, this was the parent hat here, which is stop sitting around on the computer all day. Yeah. Right. And, and while, yes, the same kind of reaction, right, that we, I think parents have, we'll chuckle at that. 
it, it does kind of speak to what we're talking about because there's this unknown as to what is going on. And I get the sense from the parent side of it that, and, and as a parent myself, that it's the unknown that makes us very nervous because the, we can't go back in our own minds and our own memories to have a real, I think, understanding for what that might mean or what the impact might be for that young person that happens to be my child. How do you understand it? How do you unpack that in, especially given, I mean, look, you have such a unique background. You've seen behind the curtain uh, on the federal side of it, on the state side of innovation, right? You, and everything that you do with ISTE. So what should we understand? What should we be nervous about when we think about that? And how do we create a better opportunity for engagement? Because that to me is a key opportunity, the engagement we have with our kids about what they're utilizing with technology so that it doesn't feel as if they have to do it in the shadows. Let me, let me share something that I think might be helpful as, as context to get at some of what you were uh, uh, talking about there, which is there's, there's a lot to unpack in what, in what you just asked. And, and so as I was getting ready to write this book, again, I, I'm a parent of four children, right? I'm su- supposedly an expert in education and in technology, and yet here I am with four kids struggling to create a healthy digital culture in our family. And so I began to look and see what else was out there, right? What else had been written uh, to, to guide this. And what I found that the books and the other guidance out there were, uh, were, were things that said, just avoid technology, it's evil, right? Bury your device in the backyard. That was kind of the, the, the narrative. And, the, and there, were, there are books that actually have titles like that, you know, like the technology is making our kids stupider. And like, th- th- those are actual, that's the guidance that we see. Um, but that's not what I was seeing with my kids, right? It's not what I was seeing with uh, kids in schools. I get to visit schools all around the world. It's not what I was seeing with those kids. I was seeing creative, engaged kids, kids that were, cared far more about their families and communities than, than I ever did growing up, uh, but not having the scaffolding that they needed, the guidance, the supports to be able to use technology in support of those, uh, those pursuits. And so when I began interviewing and uh, talking to parents, talking to teachers, one of the things that I found over and over again was that the conversation about how to help support kids in virtual spaces was almost entirely negative. So it was, don't do this, don't do that, don't spend so much time on the computer, don't waste your time on that game, don't post inappropriate things. It's just all these don'ts, right? The problem, Rod, is that the, the, the skills required to be a successful human in a digital world uh, are complex. This is not the digital world that you and I stepped into back when we were young, right? This is a much more complex world. And, and, and we don't see it as much because it's grown around us as we've, grown, as, as we've grown up. But for our kids to just sort of dump them right into this highly complex world, knowing these skills takes practice. And you can't practice not doing something right? You can't learn a sport by being told all the things not to do wrong. You can't learn to play the piano by being told all the notes not to play. You have to be able to practice those things. And so if our narrative is don't do this, don't do that, don't, you know, don't watch this thing, it actually prevents our young people, our children, uh, from learning the skills that they need to be successful digital citizens. We got to flip that. We got to flip that and talk about the skills we want to see them developing. Richard, what do we think the, the main concerns are that parents have when it comes to that? Uh, that you know, it, it's you know, it becomes a, this fear that it's a bridge too far. That they're they are on a digital lance. They're within a digital landscape that I can't control. And I don't yes. know what's going to be presented to them. So, what do we think, parents? I mean, are there some hallmark concerns? Is it language? Is it violence? Is it sexuality? Like, what are we concerned about as parents that? feels like we should get out into the open and have a conversation about that because we're even podcasting now language used in podcasts that adults listen to just about sports politics has completely changed 
I mean, there are things being said today that would have never passed muster years ago. And right. so it feels like acceptance for we've just pushed the boundaries a lot. And I'm just very curious as to what we find that parents are truly concerned about when they play this, don't do this game. Yeah. You know, there are, it's interesting. There are a lot of things and it's different depending on the, on the family and and the parents, but I'll tell you the one question that I get asked the most, I think relates to time, right? How much time is my kid spending on this thing? There's always conversation about the, about screen time. There's always conversation about time. Um, and, and I think the challenge, there's a number of challenges there and we can talk about some if you want, but one of them, and, and it, it's going to seem so interesting. I think when I say it, it's, it's very obvious, but often when I talk to parents, they're like, you know, I, I, I don't want my kid spending so much time on this, on this game, on this, on this thing. And I, you know, I go and tell them, don't, don't stop using that game. Stop. And, and, and the simple reframe that I ask is, well, what do you want them to be doing? Right. This message of don't do that. Don't do that. It's not helpful. It's not helpful. So, so if the concern is that the digital activity that they're participating in isn't just isn't very valuable digital activity, then the reframe is to say, "Hey, I have no problem that you're you know you you doing digital activities, but but let's help you choose one that maybe is more creative than a repetitive game, right? If the concern is that you're not engaging with your family, then say that. Be like, "Hey, it's great that you're you're you know watching uh, videos on YouTube, but we miss you. So let's spend some time with us." Do you, do you see that instead of the just stop doing the thing you're doing on technology. It comes from a good place. Parents aren't being mean. They're just like, oh, I just want limits. But the limits, they happen by, by teaching the concept of balance and teaching this concept of, hey, this is becoming an activity that's out of balance in your life. Let's balance it with an activity that will help uh, uh, create a help, more healthier use of your time. That's the way to do it, as opposed to just saying, here's all the things not to do. Well, what about the assumption that we as adults know what is valuable digital experiences and content, right? I, that to me feels like an uphill battle. I recently interviewed a co-found, the co-founder of Pixar, uh, Dr. Alvy Ray Smith, and he talked about just, just the rate, right, of, of innovation that is just exponential. And it's, so it feels like if we take that and we put that over the top of this discussion here, that if we, if an objective is to get parents to understand and to be discerning consumers of digital information and content, and experiences, my goodness, they may not, that would be their full-time job. Um, and two, without that, it feels like it can be very frustrating for the young person in that conversation with their parent, because in essence, the parent quote unquote, doesn't get it. But, but here's the cool part, right? The cool part is it's an opportunity for parents to try to be part of it and learn uh, about this world from their, their kids. And, and, and one big, you know, kind of warning that I give a, a suggestion, maybe we'll say it that way to, to families is don't go in saying, here's all the rules and here's what you got to do. And, and I'm going to just sort of lay it all out for how, what's going to happen in, in our house. Like that's a terrible way to do it. A much better way to do it is to come together with your kids, especially if you have older kids, come together with older kids and say, um, what are the types of digital activities uh, we want to be part of in our family. What what type of persona do we want to have in a virtual space? Let's talk about that first and set those conditions and, and do it in writing. I actually suggest that we do that in writing. And then once you have those conditions set, then it becomes easier to start to decide what activities fit or don't fit in our family culture. If we're watching content that doesn't seem to align with the type of digital persona we want to be, it's easier to say, hey, that, that doesn't feel right. Or if we're engaging in uh, activities that are taking lots and lots of our time away from other family or other healthier digital activities, again, we, it's not a fight about that app and, and how we hate that app. It's back to these 
the, 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 the sort of ground rules that we set, which is this is who we want to be in a virtual space. And this activity is not aligned with that. And, and involving kids, you'll be fascinated how many, when you actually ask them to help define what, what type of person they, and, and are as a family, the type of people we want to be in virtual spaces, most kids are all in on that. And they'll have some real surprising insights that I think we can learn from as well. It feels Richard, this, this makes me sound like the old guy in the corner, but it does feel like this is a major transition point for humanity because we, you know, we're sitting here as gray haired, you know, we're like holding on for dear life because we don't understand the digital landscape. We know what we need for work. We, you know, we're streaming, you know, movies and entertainment, but my goodness, what young people are seeing in their digesting and the way in which they apply what they experience, we can't even, I think we would struggle to comprehend. So it feels like this incredible shift, right? That will impact healthcare, just all kinds of things that will change the world around us. And let me add to that. So I, you know, years ago, I was in a, not that long ago, but I was in a hot air balloon. And, and I remember thinking to myself, is it because I've had, you know, did, you know, digital experiences and understand VR and these sorts of things that it didn't seem real. It almost felt like I had been there before because I could, you can turn on your computer at any moment and almost mirror that kind of experience. So is that part of it that there's this just level that we just kind of have to get comfortable as parents, as adults in the room to say, this is different. This is new. It is changing yeah. right beneath our feet. And part of that is allowing us to feel more comfortable with what a new normal might be and what that might feel like. Yeah, I think it is. And and I think the key that's so important is um, teasing out the technologies from the underlying principles uh, that we want to have exist in our family. And, and that's one of the things that I always sort of uh, try to, it, it, by the way, it's, it's what back to this idea of screen time. It's why screen time is such a problematic concept because it acts like all digital activities. Anything that happens on a screen is of the same value. And that's just not true, right? Nothing could be farther from the truth. It's like, it's like food, right? Like we don't have food time. You know, it's not like you just, uh, between (laughs) six and seven at night, you can eat whatever you want. You can eat Twinkies for an hour and then, and then be done. Like, no, we talk about the fact that there are different, different foods. Some have more value than others. We try to eat a balance. And by the way, we stop eating. Not when the time is over, we don't shove Twinkies into the last second. No, we stop eating when we're full and we teach our kids the same thing. Right. But that means back to your point, that means we have to actually be familiar with a variety of foods. And in in the digital world, I think you see where I'm going, like we need to expand both our kids and our own digital palettes. We need to be exploring what tools are out there. And it is totally fine to say, hey, this this digital activity, it's the digital equivalent of a Twinkie, right? It might be fun. We might play it a little bit. It does not have a lot of value and doesn't deserve a lot of our time. But there are other activities that also will show up on a screen that have deep value and really uh, uh, can be the sorts of things that we do want to spend significant time in. We have to be able to figure that out, not not without our kids, but with our kids, we have to become comfortable with a variety. Again, it's expanding our digital palettes, right? Both as as parents and as kids. And for those that are reading along, uh, this is reading hour with your host, Rod. (laughs) Uh, On page 96, it really kind of ties together the things we've been talking about. You've got this section called Diversify Our Digital Diet. And I just want to read directly from, from the book here. It says, the second whammy that we must address in order to teach inclusivity is recognizing that our virtual third places, key phrase there, by the way, I'd love for you to talk about, have been designed to reinforce our existing viewpoints. Think back to our conversation about cognitive dissonance. 
Ideas that challenge previously held notions are stressful. Most virtual shared spaces are funded by ad revenue, meaning the platform providers make money by keeping our eyes on their site for as long as possible. It's just such a key point to the, when you're talking about diet and, and getting into the nuance of this digital diet um, to be, I think it, it adds an awareness. It takes it to a level beyond screen time. When you had conversations with parents, did you, did you get the sense that there is a desire to know more? There's a desire to understand and sort of walk around sort of in a three-dimensional sort of environment, what is behind what they're looking at at face value when it comes to digital experiences, that there's this growing sort of desire to know more about it so that they can make better choices. If it has to do with everything from, you know, uh, discourse and the way in which we're communicating or, and or is screen time, not all screen times the same, are we becoming more interested or are we still stuck in fear? Well, I, I mean, it, certainly there's a wide variety of, of different reactions, but I'll tell you, when I talk to parents, um, most of them are, are really just relieved to be let out of this concept that is no longer matching their reality, right? And, and it's, again, it seems so simple, but just just uh, uh, the other day I was meeting with some parents, we were doing a, a book talk and we were meeting with them and um, uh, and I was talking about how we need to evaluate different activities. And, and one thing came up and, and their uh, kid was using Minecraft, right? Uh, Minecraft, I think, is a great activity. It's very creative. It is a game, but it's very creative. It's building, it's constructing, it's, uh, you, there's some programming that's even, even built in there. And she said, you know, wow, I just feel so relieved to do this because I felt so guilty that my kid was just playing this game. But but now that I'm allowed to recognize that that every game kind of needs, you know, every, every activity, whether it's a game or not, um, we need to evaluate the value of it. I can actually say, no, there are some things that are, are really good digital activities and I'm fine with them. And 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 I, I always felt that way, but I was feeling sort of shame from other parents a little bit, right? That I was, that my, you know, my, my kids were, were playing a game and games are bad. No, some are, some are really mindless and they should should be, uh, you know, partaken of very, very limitedly. But this idea of being able to um, to take uh, uh, one off our digital activities and evaluate the, their their value is, I think, very freeing. And I think parents really uh, appreciate a a model that is more helpful. Now it's more work, right? It's sure it's a lot easier to say you got an hour after dinner for you know do screen time, do whatever you want. I don't care, right? That is. Uh, a lot easier, but it's not healthy. It's not healthy for the digital culture, not healthy if you're teaching our kids uh, what they you know, should or should not be doing in virtual spaces. So let's talk about the, I think, which is in my estimation, it's really the crux of it from a parent's perspective is, is the not knowing, but related to safety. Yes. And then the extension to data. And you talk about that. You, I mean, it's just a great question. It's a very simple question, but I think it's a very poignant one. Who should have access to our data um, in your book? And so how do you unpack or decouple this, this element of a world where data is ubiquitous, right? I mean, it's just in our understanding of it and going to an ATM and our health records and just, you know, going to the grocery store and it already populates what they think we want. Um, going all in, but then having that sort of the hair in the back of your neck say, yeah, but I got to be careful because I'm a parent and a young person and safety. So how do we understand our relationship with data yeah. And how do we maintain that relationship in a positive light so that we can still ensure the safety of our young people through digital experiences? It's such a great question. And I, in, in the book, I sort of take a slightly different angle than other people when talking about this. And, and what I say is, uh, as I, I, I believe, I think a, a way that we can get at this is to, uh, with our kids, help them understand that data is essentially currency. In, in a very real form, right? It, it is, it is a, our data has actual monetary value. 
Uh, and so one of the things that we need to be talking about is that there, there really are very few actual free apps and free websites. There are a few out there, but very few, right? And so we, we don't always pay for them with cash, right? We don't always pay for them with money, but sometimes we're paying for them with our data. And, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that, but what I'm saying, and I, and I explain in the book, is that the price should be worth the value that we receive in return, and so if an app is asking for lots of our data, lots of our personal information, and giving us very limited value back, that's not a good trade, right? It's like a, you know, having a, a kid come up and, and, and ask my son, you know, I want to buy your, your brand new bike and I'm going to give you $5 for it. You know, of course not, right? Uh, and so that's that, that concept. And kids understand that. We need to be applying to the digital world. Now, there are other apps where we, we are willing to give a little more information. You know, I, I uh, um, uh, have quite a bit of my information that Amazon knows. They know the things I've purchased. They know where I live. They know my credit card number. There's value that I'm getting in return that I feel like is an appropriate exchange for it. And so, so it's not that we can't ever share our data. It's not that we can't. It's just that we need to understand that that is a currency that we are using to pay. And, and the exchange needs to feel right. And the information that I'm being asked to share, uh, if, it's, if it's very valuable information, very personal information about me, health records, things like that, boy, that return better be really valuable and it better be related to the data that's being asked for. And if it's not, we should stare clear. Let's pivot here and let's look at the role education uh, and the education industry, I think, can play in this in basically um, navigating, translating, brokering a better experience and relationship that we would have with technology when we are not in school. Yet, I think the opportunity lies in a world where you do have educational systems around the country and the world where they are, I think, very progressive in documenting learning in a way in which it invites parents and caregivers and students into the conversation so that it is a living, breathing, some call it a portfolio, but ways in which to see how we are growing as students. And it feels like that is a real world example where we are thinking about our digital, I think, uh, experience, the role we play digitally, and how that ties to all the important players sort of in our, in our, our domain, right, our local domain. What, how do you see that? Am I, am I far afield on that? Or is it a great sort of real-time experience for parents who can see technology, see their children in that, see how it applies to their growth? Because that's one of the questions, right? Is this quality? If they're spending time playing Minecraft and I don't think that that is beneficial, or I do, um, I do think that we look at it through that lens. And it feels like education is the opportunity to sort of broker an broker a relationship I'm in a conversation that is very different outside of something like, what did you watch on YouTube or what game did you play uh, on your phone? I, I mean, the, the information and data that uh, we can can get, and it's and we often talk about the data, it's really the way the data that is used and presented that matters, right? It's the visualization of the data, it's the way it's used to help uh, support our decision-making in the learning space is uh, really transformational. It can support teachers, parents, and students themselves all helping to have a better understanding about their learning process. Learning is hard because it's it's sort of an invisible construct. I mean, there are things happening in our brain, but we can't you can't like look in somebody's brain and see what's going on, right? And so it's tricky. It's it's difficult. And so when data can be used to help visualize, help to make more. Uh, uh, visible the path, the learning pathways, and there's many different pathways, that is really powerful. And so I think and one of the silver linings of COVID is that many schools have started to be able to use technology in some new ways. 
Unfortunately, and I, I just have to, you know, uh, uh, be realistic here, there's still a number of places, still a number of schools where the technology is being used uh, primarily to present content, right? So, so, and I say this all the time, the least interesting thing we can do with technology is present content on a screen, right? Read this thing, click through this PowerPoint, you know, uh, watch this video. I, I'm not saying don't ever do it, but, but that's way less interesting than using technology to uh, problem solve and to create and design and to collaborate and and come up with uh, new solutions. Those are the activities that we should be doing. And when those activities are accompanied with uh, data that can help show us our progress in the work we're doing, that's when learning gets really amazing. Like that's when it gets like exponentially uh, impactful. Uh, if we're just taking the you know the the old worksheets that we used to do and scanning them and putting them on a screen, right? Arguably, we haven't made any progress. In fact, maybe even taken a step backwards. So do you, th do you find in your position and the vendors that you know, and then obviously your, your role in understanding how schools operate, are we making progress? Because when I hear you speak, it feels like a lost opportunity. I would say this is the moment where we, we will see. Right, because because something that has happened, and I've spent years studying innovation. I, you know, in, in my previous roles, I've, I've just spent a lot of time looking at how innovation happens, what the conditions are for innovation. And one thing that we see fairly consistently is after a moment of crisis or a moment of disruption, there's always a bloom in innovation. There's always an acceleration of innovation on the on the hind side of that, right? Uh, and so this is a moment where we've just all been through a, a you know, global crisis, a global disruption. And so the conditions are set, the conditions are right to lead to accelerated innovation. But that depends on us, right? And, and, and it, it doesn't, it's not causal, right? It's not that the disruption causes the innovation, it's, the, it's that the disruption sets the conditions for smart people to take advantage of to, to innovate, right? And so we have to decide. And I think it's literally like this year that we're gonna figure that out. And if we take advantage of these moments, take advantage of new technology that's available, take advantage of the fact that we're comfortable trying new things that we weren't able to try before, if we're, uh, we can set a course that will be you know, dramatically different in terms of how learning looks in the future. And, and frankly, if we do it well, I think we'll look back and we'll say, you know, maybe COVID was the best thing to ever happen uh, in education. Uh, but if we don't take advantage of this moment and just sort of slide back to the familiar, the comfortable, uh, then, then all of the disruption and all of the chaos that we've gone through will have served really no value. So let's talk about something that you and I, um, we discussed off air because I think it's important for the audience to, to have a better understanding. And if you could explain and, and just sort of talk about, uh, I'm talking about ESSER funding and to this point of around opportunity and the moment at hand, yeah. um, you know, educate the audience a little bit on what, what it is. And, and what, and then I'd like for you to address what I've heard off the record from superintendents, which is there a, a general frustration at what some districts are or not doing with the added funding that they've been given in a world where maybe we should be thinking a little bit differently. Maybe it's a time to pivot and rethink what our assumptions were and were they good? And is this a world where we need to think more thoughtfully about digital engagement and opportunity and what content looks like? And, you know, it goes, it runs the gamut, right? Yeah. Talk a little bit about that, given your the roles that you've played and how should we should understand that as community members and the ways in which we advocate and support our local schools to make decisions that we will support, even if they are maybe far afield right now, but they're very, I think, forward thinking. 
Yeah. Well, well, first thing, just for a little bit of context for people who aren't aware, um, there is a huge amount of money that is going out to school, uh, school districts right now. Uh, and, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, or just, just lots and lots and lots of money. And so it's one of the few times in my career in education where money has not been the restricting factor for being able to do things in education. For so long, when I was a teacher and, you know, for many, many years after, that was often the, the holdup. Oh, we'd love to do this. We don't have the money. For now, and it's, and it's, it's a window. Right? It's not going to last in perpetuity, but for, for now, for this moment that we're in, money is not the factor that is withholding uh, progress, innovation, or transformation. The challenge is that we've taken um, you know, schools where we have leaders who are frankly exhausted because they've just been through a really crazy last 18 months and who have not had a lot of experience uh, even, even thinking about what the design of the future looks like. And we've said, here's a whole bunch of money, spend it well, do it quick, and it's going to go away, right? And so I feel for a lot of these leaders, I feel for them because they need help thinking through what the what the design of the future should be. And, and I think there are many, you know, the, the superintendents that I know and the people that are, that are, you know, are aware enough to say, I need some help. Uh, and there are groups that, you know, my organization, ISTE and others um, have people that are standing by to help. And, and we start by asking questions like, what sort of learning experience do you want to create in the future? And then we talk about how tools and infrastructure and technology can help support that always with uh, preparing and supporting teachers as part of that, uh, that process. The, the, the scary part, though, though Rod, and I, again, I just, just to be totally blunt, is there are a number of places, schools, uh, where uh, uh, that question is not being asked, right? They're not saying, hey, we need some help thinking about designing the future. They're just saying, well, let's just buy more things, right? Let's just, uh, you know, a vendor came to us and said, here's a, here's a good thing. I guess we'll just, just buy that, that solution. And, and you can never buy your way to innovation. It just doesn't work that way, right? You can buy tools and, and, and you know, systems to support an innovation idea and your vision for learning, but you can't just buy, uh, you know, uh, uh, innovation, you can't buy improvement in schools. And so that's the moment that we're in and we have to get ahead of that. And we have to say, the first step is being very clear, what type of learning experience do we want to be creating for our kids? And, and does it look different? And it should look different in a world that is very virtual in a world where being in a, in a different part of the world has no bearing on why or why I should not be collaborating with a kid or an expert there, right? If, if I were to tell, you know, our, our kids today, well, we, we can't connect or collaborate with somebody from another country, right? Because they live in another country. They would look at you like you had lobsters <laughs> crawling out of your ears, right? And so those, those, um, those limitations, those, those blinders that we come in with just from years of knowing what school used to be like, they are holding back some of the innovation that we could have for our for the future where we're in a world where we no longer have to have these physical separations we no longer have to have uh, expertise limited to only people that are in your your you know school building those are the types of things we need to be thinking of and, and we got to do it fast this is when it feels like it really comes full circle and talking about your book and civil discourse and understanding digital environments because it does feel like prior to the pandemic relationships with parents from the school side of it was we, we did what we had to do uh, to minimize risk and any uh, challenge to our day-to-day -day and what we had to accomplish then all of a sudden we went to these hybrid and virtual environments where parents got a front row seat to what the kids were being taught and what they were experiencing. And there were a lot of questions, right? Not knowing exactly what they were looking at and very, uh, I think very much having a difficulty understanding the value of what they were seeing. And so now it's to say, okay, well, how can we support a school that is getting funding from the federal government within this window of time to your point? And my goodness, if we were more educated as parents as to what is going on in school, 
where we have, a, I think, a more, um, we just have a richer relationship with our schools, which would be great. I think people would agree with, we can always continue to improve in that area. We might be able to support progressive, really thoughtful, forward-thinking ideas with regards to what we're doing with this funding, if we are going to sort of challenge the norms and be progressive and be fluid and not sort of static and stale, which is the stereotype of education, that we move very slowly, we're archaic, we need, you know, there's a lot of bureaucracy. It just feels like we, that's where some things have not lined up. Um, I want to, I want to close with this, Richard, and get your, get your thoughts. Cause in the book, you talk about these five qualities that every young person should develop in order to become a thriving, contributing digital citizen. And, and with what my, my diatribe just there, I, I do feel like it's creating the next generation that will hopefully help the following generation, right? Understand at a level that is just different and, and hopefully richer in context than what we and our generation, uh, I think, are currently experiencing, Richard. So, do you mind sharing some of those qualities? Sure. So, so uh, one of the things that I that I is very important that I lay out in the, in the book are what are the characteristics of a, an effective digital citizen, right? Like, if I'm saying let's stop all the don'ts and let's just saying what not to do, well, what are the do's, right? What are, and so, so I list out five, um, and and I share that I believe that that effective digital citizens need to be balanced, right? And we talked about that. And they need to find a balance in their in their different activities. They need to be informed so they know how to get accurate and useful information from virtual spaces and identify information that is not uh, not helpful for their purposes. They need to be inclusive. They need to know how to create spaces that are inclusive of other people, including people who have very different ideas, not just to be nice, but because we actually need differing and opposing viewpoints in order to learn. It's a required element of learning is having people interact with us with very differing ideas. And so that's the third one. Uh, the, the fourth one is being engaged. Right. Uh, we need digital citizens who know how to use technology to engage with their families, with their communities, with uh, uh, other members of uh, virtual communities around uh, around the world. This is how we are going to make change happen in the future. It is being engaged in virtual spaces and helping to advocate for causes that we care about. And then finally uh, is alert, the, the last uh, characteristics. We need digital citizens who are alert, who know how to watch out for dangers. Uh, like we talked about data that's being used inappropriately or somebody who is um, uh, you know, trying to uh, uh, you have nefarious purposes in, in interactions online. We need to be alert for those sorts of things and not only to be protecting ourselves, but be alert for others as well so that we can help be uh, really creating a, a functioning civil society in a virtual world. Richard, I want to make sure people can get a hold of your book and can connect with you where you are in your world. Why don't you uh, share some of those destinations or locations for us? Sure. So uh, you can get the book on uh, uh, Amazon, certainly, but also I've been just so thrilled that uh, many uh, hundreds, I guess thousands at this point of independent booksellers around the country are also carrying the book. And so if you want to uh, go and, and support your local bookstore, I, I would certainly appreciate that as well. So either place you can get the book uh, uh, that way. Also, if you're interested in just staying connected with me, um, I have a, a Twitter account, which is Dig for Good, D-I-G for Good, uh, which is specifically about ideas related to digital citizenship. And then I'm also at R Colada, R-C-U-L-A-T-T-A on Twitter. And that well, I'll talk about digital citizenship, but also some of the broader work that I'm doing in the education space. And so always happy to connect with people in, in virtual spaces. Well, I will share this with the audience that I've known you for over a decade. And what I really appreciate about the book in a day and age where we've got all kinds of, of ghost writers and just different ways to produce content is that 
I was hearing your voice as I was reading this, right? This was very much, this was you. I, I did, I, think I wrote every word of it, it's true. <laughs> and it's, it, it's very important because there are some very practical, uh, I think, answers and approaches to the questions that are residing in the back of our minds when we close down at the end of the night, wanting and hoping for the best uh, for our children. So I, I couldn't re recommend this more. Digital for Good, Raising Kids to Thrive in an Online World by my buddy Richard Collada, uh, by Harvard Business Review Press. And as, just as a reminder for those that don't know, Richard is the CEO of ISTE, the International Society for Technology and Education. And prior to that, he served as the Chief Innovation Officer of the state of Rhode Island and was appointed by President Obama to lead the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Educational Technology. So he knows what we want to know. Uh, a good guy, a, a passionate professional about all things technology and education. I want to also thank those that helped to bring this conversation together. I want to thank Strategist Group, developing and influencing through change expertise, and to our friends at Edsby, the K-12 platform of the future today. I've been your host on On Balance, Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.